So this morning we'll be looking at chapter 21 of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. This chapter deals with Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. Now, when you first hear Christian liberty, you might get the idea that we're addressing what a Christian can and cannot do uh, according to his conscience. For instance, we may get the idea that we're dealing with uh, things like if a Christian can drink wine or watch certain movies or go to secular concerts. Although there is an aspect of Christian liberty that we should think through as it concerns those things, that's not the main focus of this chapter of the confession. The primary goal in this chapter is to address the liberty purchased by Christ for believers under the gospel. And so that's what we'll be dealing with. So just like all the other chapters of the confession, this chapter has a context. It has a historical backdrop. Uh, this chapter was drawn up to address a few different ideas. One was something uh, referred to as ecclesiastical totalitarianism. So the Roman Catholic Church uh, demanded that men believe its decrees without scriptural verification, uh, and it assumed that it had the right to make laws added to the word of God. So what's the issue with that? <clears throat> Well, no man or church has the authority to bind the conscience with man-made doctrines or commands. No man or church has total authority over any Christian. The other issue was similar, except it dealt with the government. <clears throat> this error taught that the state was the final human authority, and some reformers were influenced by this view. To get out from under the dominion of the Roman Pope, uh, some churches put themselves under the protection of the authority of the civil rulers, the government. And the 1689 rejects both of those errors. And other reformed uh, confessions, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, one last error is addressed in this chapter. This error was an extreme reaction to the first two errors. This reaction was to overthrow both civil and ecclesiastical authority, and this was done in the name of Christian liberty. In other words, the idea is this. Christ is coming back soon, and we need to bring in his kingdom uh, at, at any cost, by any means necessary, even if we have to get violent. And many who held this view did indeed get violent. The Savoy Declaration and the 1689 both deleted this fourth paragraph, which you find in the Westminster Confession of Faith. The paragraph was deleted because it taught that there should only be a single Presbyterian church, uh, state church. And this led to the idea that the civil government had the duty to suppress or stump out heresy. So how does that lead to that conclusion? How does a single Presbyterian state church lead to this conclusion that the, uh, the state has the authority to stump out heresy? Because now heresy is defined as a public offense against the opinions of a Presbyterian government and what they believe to be contrary to Christian principles. And the 1689 and the Savoy Declaration 
didn't agree with that perspective. And so they removed that fourth chapter, which you find in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Okay, so that's a brief backdrop that helps us to understand what's behind and underneath these paragraphs. With that, let's read paragraph one. Liberty Christ is purchased for believers when the gospel is found in their freedom from guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, and the severity and curse of the law. It also includes their deliverance from this present evil age, bondage to Satan, the dominion of sin, the suffering of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave, of the grave, and everlasting damnation. In addition, it includes their free access to God and their obedience to Him, not from slavish fear, but from a childlike love and willing mind. All these liberties were also enjoyed in their essence by believers under the law. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further expanded. They are free from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish congregation was subjected. They have greater confidence of access to the throne of grace and they have a fuller supply of God's free spirit than believers under the law usually experience. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> so this paragraph starts by reminding us that Christ has purchased these Christian liberties. Christ has purchased them for the Christian. Through his virgin birth, his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father, believers now enjoy the benefits of Christian liberties. And where are those liberties found? As paragraph one states, they are found under the gospel. In other words, the gospel is the means through which the true believer enjoys these liberties purchased by Christ. And what are the liberties purchased by Christ? Freedom from the guilt of sin, freedom from the condemning wrath of God, and freedom from the severity and curse of the law. First, the regenerate person is freed from the guilt imputed by Adam's sin. Remember, the guilt of Adam's sin is credited not just to Adam himself, but all of us in Adam. We are regarded as having sinned in Adam. And so by nature, we rightly deserve the same punishment. This is imputed sin. We are counted in Adam and having sinned with him. But notice this paragraph states that we are free from the guilt of sin. Romans uh, 5.15 says this, and I don't have my PowerPoint, so you guys can flip, flip there with me if you like, or you can just listen. Romans 5.15 says this, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one man many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. So we're not liberated, so, so we're not only liberated from imputed sin, but we're free from actual sin we commit daily as well. We're free from our enslavement to sin. Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 5 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, including the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And our consciences, in addition to this, are also purified through the spirit and the blood of Christ. And so we can now draw near to God with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. If you were to walk up to someone on the street and, and ask them, what do you think is the most fearful thing in the world? What makes you tremble to the core? What answer do you think that person would give you? What answer do you think you would give? I'm sure some would probably say spiders. Others would say heights or a fear of heights. I saw a hand over there, all right? <laughs> some may even say death. So these all are true and valid fears. But for the one who's um, thinking on these things in a, in a spiritual sense, he recognizes that the most terrifying thing in the universe is the condemning wrath of God. Because God is ultimate reality. The greatest threat to one's life is the fixed holiness of God, who, who, <clears throat> whose wrath um, is the proper response to anything that's not holy. We see that in Romans 1.18. But what's so amazing is that Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel liberty and freedom from the condemning wrath of God. Romans 8, 1 to 2 says, Therefore there was now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So this paragraph uh, continues in saying that the believer also has freedom from the severity of the curse of the law. Uh, In the older 1689 uh, Confession of Faith, it uses a a different language um, in this paragraph. It uses this language and it says, the rigor and the curse of the law. They've been freed from the rigor and the curse of the law. Rigor refers to uh, unrelenting strictness. So God's holy standard does not change. Uh, He's not flexible in his justice. So what what does it mean to be free from the severity uh, and the curse of the law? It means that we're free from the curse that is upon all lawbreakers, which we are by nature. We're free from the curse of uh, the punishment of all violators of the law which we are by nature. How does this happen? Well, we see it plainly from Galatians 3. In verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So uh, Paul uh, pulls from an Old Testament text to to bring this out. And he essentially says, Christ has taken the the curse that was promised for those who broke the law of God. 
Christ has become a curse for us. He's taken the punishment for the lawbreaker. So this is a very uh, sobering thought and reality for the unbeliever, the person who has not placed their trust in Christ and still stands as his opponent. God the Father has punished his only begotten son for sin. How do you think that you will escape? Will Christ, who is sinless, be cursed for sin and yet you be let off the hook? By no means. Of course not. God's holy standard is fixed because God himself is holy. So the encouragement for the unbeliever is to turn from your sin and to trust in the one who is cursed on a tree for sin, lest you endure the punishment of the curse for all eternity. So this paragraph goes on to name many other liberties purchased by Christ. And because of time, I won't be able to go through each of them. But the writers of the confession wanted to confirm that all of these liberties were also enjoyed in their essence by believers under the law. In other words, the Old Testament believer. The Old Testament believers enjoyed these liberties as well. They were theirs as well. If you remember chapter 20, which dealt with the gospel and the extent of its grace, in paragraph one it says, in this promise, and that's the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, the gospel, as to the substance of it was revealed and therein effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners, even in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Now, while there is some continuity between um, the Old and the New Covenant, under the New Testament, the liberty, the, the liberty of Christians is, the confession says here, further expanded. So how? What does that mean? Well, now New Testament believers are not under the ceremonial law. They're not under the yoke of the ceremonial law. This is clearly a further expansion of the New Testament believers' liberty. They also have greater confidence uh, of access to the throne of grace and a fuller supply of the Spirit. So something unique happened by the death and resurrection of Christ that has given New Testament believers greater confidence and access to the throne of grace. So Hebrews 10, 19 to 20 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So again, something unique has happened by the atonement of Christ that has given New Testament believers greater confidence and access to the throne of grace. The la <clears throat> and last, the New Testament believer has been given fuller supply of the Spirit. They have been given primarily fuller illumination of truth. To the Old Testament saint, this revelation of Christ was a veiled shadow. To the New Testament saint, it has become a room lit with the light of greater revelation 
uh, of Christ through the scriptures and the spirit. The liberties that Christ has purchased for believers should cause us uh, not to be downcast, but to actually uh, rejoice and hold fast to the promises of God as we trust and stand firm in the faith and we await our Savior's return. Okay, let's uh, jump down to the second paragraph. Let me have someone read the second paragraph for us. Okay, thank you. So this paragraph is uh, simply saying, God is the only lawgiver, uh, and because he is the lawgiver, he only has the authority to judge his creatures for breaking his law. So men will not be judged for breaking man's law, man-made laws added to the word. Men will ultimately be judged for breaking God's law. So adding to the word of God and judging men for breaking our added laws and commands is sinful. And this will only provoke God's anger against the one adding his own commands to the word of God. James 4.12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? So James is not saying here, uh, don't judge. He's saying, don't set yourself above the law as a judge. God alone has the authority to make commands and doctrines. So what the Bible is stating here and what the confession is affirming is simply, is, is simple and clear. No man's conscience should be bound to obey unauthorized doctrine or commands. You may be asking, well, how do we know whether or not we're obeying the doctrines of men? How do we know whether we've sort of crossed over to obeying their doctrines and not the doctrines of the word? <clears throat> well, the answer to that question is actually found in another question. The answer to that question is this. Are those doctrines and commands found in, in Scripture? If they're not in Scripture, then they are of man and not God. Now, at times, this can be more difficult to discern. I understand. I've been there. Uh, but this is why we can't afford to be uh, Christians who are uh, lazy in our Bible reading or in our striving to dig and study the Word. Uh, we have to dig deep at times and uh, sift through the word and strive to interpret the word properly. We should do this all the time, actually, uh, when it comes to these different issues. So we have to be students of the scripture. Um, we have to have our Bibles open and uh, even using uh, the means of grace which God has given through uh, preachers and teachers as they have written things to help us to study the word of God so that we're good Bible students. This helps us to discern truth from error and man's commands from God's holy law. Matthew 59 says this, but in vain do they worship me, 
teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. This is a picture of the will and human tradition of the Pharisees as they try to usurp the law of God. Another passage to consider on this doctrine of Christian liberty. When Peter and John are threatened and told not to preach anymore about the Messiah and his salvation, this is how they respond. Acts 4, 19 and 20 says, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in your sight I'm sorry, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So the believer is bought at a price, and the price is Christ's blood. Because that is true, we must not become slaves to men and their commands. We have one master and Lord, and that's Christ Jesus. Colossians 2, 20 to 23 says, If we have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit, to, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commands and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So believers' union with Christ in his death has freed them from worldly rules that enslave the conscience of others. The believer's union with Christ in his resurrection and ascension involves their responsibility to, uh, to have their minds, uh, which includes their perspectives, their affections, their values, defined by heaven and the Christ who lives and reigns there. Uh, many of our brothers and sisters in the faith actually have been threatened and some killed for not betraying their conscience. Some reformers even refusing to affirm the Roman Catholic system of the Eucharist were burned at the stake. They knew that it was neither right nor safe to go against conscience, so long as the word of God bound their conscience. So this paragraph continues and goes on to say that believing such doctrines or obeying such commands out of conscience is actually a betrayal of true liberty of conscience. So this paragraph sort of switches to another subject. At first the subject was addressing the believer and telling them not to submit their conscience to unbiblical teachings, but now it transitions to warning those who are actually requiring this unbiblical submission. The warning is simply this. It's a betrayal of true liberty of conscience to require someone to believe what you teach without the word of God to back it up. It's a, a simple principle. That's what implicit faith means. We see things like this happening all the time, unfortunately. Many cults start by doing this very thing and unfortunately many people have been led astray. But the scripture instructs from both sides of this offense and instructs the one who may be 
uh, led astray and it instructs the one who may be leading others astray by abusing and destroying conscience. Uh, so 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. I'm going to read that for us. It says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet without, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you were slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So to make a defense means using scripture in a way that rightly reflects the content and meaning of the text. So again, be a good student of the word. We have to be able to give a reason for what we believe, and that reason has to be grounded in the word of God and an accurate interpretation of the word of God. Now, this paragraph also addresses an absolute and blind conscience. So Sam Waldron says here, absolute and blind conscience is requiring someone to obey our commands as if they were commands of God himself. That's absolutely. And without scriptural proof that they are, that's blindly. That's uh, requiring an absolute and blind obedience obeying commands as if they are God's commands and obeying them without scriptural proof, doing it blindly or asking someone to do it blindly. Again, the error that the confession is addressing here is most likely the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church had many commands and doctrines to which it required absolute and blind obedience. Um, I quoted a, a short uh, phrase from Martin Luther earlier during this class. And he actually faced this same issue during the Diet of Worms. And so the Diet of Worms was sort of an imperial council that was assembled to discuss the teachings of Martin Luther and his writings and to decide if he was a heretic and essentially what to do with them. So Luther wrote and taught doctrine that was contrary to the Roman Catholic Church's man-made doctrines and commands that were demanded, and yet they demanded that he recant. So the Roman church wasn't able to prove from scripture that Luther was wrong and still they demanded that he submit to their yoke despite his conscience and reason. So after a deep struggle in the end, Luther didn't recant, he stood firm. And he determined that it was neither right nor safe to go against conscience. Of course, this wasn't only in the Catholic church we all need to be on guard against taking someone's conscience captive and destroying their true Christian liberty of conscience. So whether we're talking about doctrine or practice, we must be cautious when we communicate and interact with other people, especially those of God's household. And we'll talk about that very point a little later in the class. Now at the beginning of the class, I wanted to clarify that the primary goal of this chapter is not uh, to deal with whether or not a Christian can do certain things. But alongside the consideration of Christian liberty is this question, what if a brother is offended by my Christian liberty? Or another common question, does the Bible, doesn't the Bible tell me to submit to the civil authority, uh, those who don't bear the sword in vain, 
how does my liberty relate to them? And those are good and common questions. And so I want to sort of think through them with you. The second question I already uh, answered in part, but I'll try to clarify a little more. The conscience of the Christian is involved in their obedience to governing authorities. That's not to say that the only authority we have is governing authorities, because the Bible tells us um, wives, uh, citizens, uh, slaves, children were all called to submit to their respective authorities. Matter of fact, every Christian is called to submit to their respective authority. But right now, I want to focus in on civil authority and what that looks like. Again, how does our liberty relate to them, the civil authority? Romans 13 is speaking about civil authority, says in verse 5, Therefore, it is necessary to be, to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For the sake of conscience, here in this text, is not a basis for respecting specific commands of civil authority, but for respecting and honoring their general authority. So th this is what that means. In other words, Paul is not saying that God is giving his stamp of approval of every command of civil authority. He's saying that the authority itself is established by God. So we're called by God to obey the governing authorities. But what does, but that does not mean uh, a, a conscientious obedience to every specific command or, or, or their specific commands or even obedience to all their commands. So we, are, we, we submit ourselves to authority because God has uh, ordained, he has put that authority in place. Yet Paul's not saying that God is giving his stamp of approval to every command that comes out from that authority that even he has put there. <clears throat> So we're called to uh, we're called by God to obey the governing authorities. But that does not mean a conscientious obedience to their specific commands or even obedience to all their commands. Why? Because their commands could be sinful and in a direct opposition to God's law. So, again, Christian liberty is never autonomous. Neither is it a blind obedience but it is always subject to the word of God. We always obey God over men, even those who occupy an authority that God himself has established. Okay? Next point I wanted to address here in passing. How does a biblical perspective of Christian liberty instruct us on how to relate to one another? When we think about Christian liberty, or the abuse of Christian liberty, our first thought is usually about the offended brother, the uh, weaker brother passages. Passages like Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 come to mind. Paul in Romans 14, he's, he addresses not putting an obstacle before the one who believes certain foods are unclean. It says in verse 15, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. 
Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Then it goes on to say in verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Excuse me. Now, it would be a mistake to read this passage as saying that Christians should not do anything anyone believes is wrong. That's not freedom either. That's actually just trading one pair of chains for another. Because now you're under the bondage of the fear of your brother. Now, the goal of this class is not to exposit And the goal of this chapter is not to exposit Romans 14 and walk through every situation that could possibly arise between a weaker brother and a stronger brother. I wouldn't have time to do that. Um, But uh, that's for another class at another time. And if you have questions on that, we can talk afterwards. But sticking here, Paul, uh, he's not uh, counseling the stronger brother, I'm sorry, But while Paul does counsel the stronger brother to be sensitive to the consciences of weaker believers, he also calls the weaker believers in this church uh, to mature in the faith and understand that they are free in Christ and to partake of his good gifts. We know this because Paul says in verse 14, nothing is unclean in itself. So in writing to the church, he actually corrects this misunderstanding uh, that these certain things are are unclean. And so the weaker brother is also not to impose uh, their personal principles regarding different issues on other believers. So the stronger brother should be sensitive to the conscience of the weaker brother. And the weaker brother is called to mature in the faith as he recognizes the freedom he has in Christ. So I'll just say that on that for now. I hope that's helpful. Okay, so with that, let's jump down to the third paragraph. Let me have someone read the third paragraph for us. Thank you. So this uh, last paragraph articulates the purpose of Christian liberty by saying that Christian liberty is not a license to sin. Christian liberty is not a license to sin. If our liberty causes us to disregard the moral law, ignore God's commands, and act with no self-control or wisdom, this is not true Christian liberty. Christian liberty is actually freedom to obey God's commands. To sin is to behave like a person who is actually enslaved. The one who uses their liberty as an excuse to practice sin is neither liberated nor Christian. Or at least this person is not acting according to his profession, his or her profession. 
So how does the natural person understand true liberty? How does the unbeliever understand true liberty? What is his perspective on what freedom is? He actually sees true liberty and freedom as autonomy from God and his commands. He says, the natural person says, in order for me to be free, I must burst his bonds apart and cast away his cords from me. The professing Christian who under pretense of Christian liberty practices any sin actual acts like an atheist. He acts like the unbeliever. That person doesn't exercise true Christian liberty at all. And this paragraph goes on to rightly say that they pervert the main objective of the grace of the gospel. The grace of the gospel is actually sanctifying us. In other words, we are being more conformed to the image of Christ in obedience to God's moral law. So again, the gospel has freed us to obey, not for enslavement, but to obey. Titus 2.14 says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. So Christ redeems us from lawlessness. No one has the liberty to practice sin, uh, not to mention twisting the goal of the gospel to serve their lusts and indulging of sin. Romans 6.1 says, what shall we say then? I mean, if you probably are familiar with this, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And what's the answer? By no means. <clears throat> No, absolutely not. May it never be. Another passage that addresses the abuse of liberty, of freedom, is Galatians 5. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. More instruction given by scripture on this point. And we actually see a picture of the intent of liberty when we look back at God's redemption and liberation of Israel from Egypt. So why did God liberate Israel from Egypt? He freed Israel so that they may serve him. It says in Exodus 4.23. So this was an Old Testament uh, type or picture that pointed to what Christ would ultimately, ultimately accomplish for his people. So we have been liberated and freed from slavery to sin, Satan, and men so that we might serve God without fear. Luke 1, 73 to 75 says, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So liberty is not the right to do whatever we want. It's not the right to do as we please. Liberty is the right to do whatever God pleases without fear. Christ purchased for us the liberty to serve the Lord without fear and to do it in holiness and righteousness. 
So in conclusion, we should treat our liberties with care and with appreciation. God is the Lord of our conscience and the ultimate authority on how our liberties are to be exercised. Our consciences are free in Christ and bound by the word of God. The word of God alone is to inform our faith and practice. Our liberty is not freedom from obedience to the moral law of God. Rather, it is liberty to freely obey it out of a renewed will and a new heart that freely loves God. Okay. So with that, let me go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ who has purchased Christian liberties for the believer. He has purchased freedom from the curse of the law, freedom from sin and death. Uh, he has purchased for us freedom to obey the word of God and obey your moral law. Lord, may you help us, cause us not to uh, abuse liberty of conscience, neither by uh, forcing others to uh, heed and uh, obey our perspectives or commands, uh, nor by uh, heeding um, our consciences and forcing them to uh, submit to the commands and doctrines of men not found in the word of God. May your word instruct us. May you guide us by your spirit. May you give us wisdom and insight and clarity. Lord, help us to honor you. And may you, as your word promises, uh, continue to sanctify us, conforming us more to the image of Christ with renewed minds and consciences sprinkled clean for obedience to Christ. Lord, bless us now as we go into uh, the service to hear your word preached. And as we take the Lord's Supper later today, uh, help us to be served well by these means of grace. And may you do these things, Lord, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.